When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So I am happy to claim credit for correctly saying that the government was not going to shut down. I am I'm happy to take a victory lap. But by the, will, by the skin will, of your teeth, by Molly. The skin of my teeth, number one. But hey, the government didn't shut down. It, it did not. If it works, it works for Congress, I'll take it. Number two, though, I will say that it's like a Pyrrhic victory because as we're going to talk about, it does appear that the nature of the deal that McCarthy cut to keep the government open may have been the precipitating event in his downfall. And given the like utter chaos that may or may not be coming, I don't know that I, if you had given me the choice between being able to claim credit for avoiding government shutdown and the persistence of some kind of stability in the House of Representatives, I might have taken the latter as much as I am competitive and like to um, like to be right. I will, I will just say I, I received a text after the government, uh, the spending bill passed, it was signed, the government remained open, that just said Molly Reynolds is the boss from a, a rational security was, was it from Molly Reynolds? It was not. <laughs> I did not send it to Quinta. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was Molly's husband. <laughs> it's fine. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. Thrilled to be back here in the virtual studio this week with my two other co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And we are joined, as is so often the case these days, but always to our great delight by our Brookings and Lawfare colleague, senior fellow Molly Reynolds, here to talk crazy Congress with us. Molly, welcome back to Rational Security. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's good. It's good to be here um, again. I just want to say I mentioned crazy Congress with K's on both crazy and Congress. That is correct. And one of the K's is is written backwards in case you're wondering. <laughs> yeah, crazy Congress like crazy cupcakes. It's the same. It's the same idea for Brooklyn Nine-Nine fans. I don't know what that's a reference to. I, really? I saw all of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but that's, all right. that's okay. But I like it's, it. It's, I the, like it's it. the game Gina gets Holt addicted to, crazy cupcakes. That's a real. That's a deep. That's cut, a real Alan. deep cut. That's a deep cut. I do not remember also this. Also, watch this show, and I have no memory. I don't think it's that deep of a cut. Anyway, <laughs> well, on that note, speaking of deep cuts, we are ready to dig deep into the weeds of some national security and let's be honest, national security kind of adjacent stories, uh, but certainly bearing on national security this week, as we have seen a number of major developments regarding some of our key institutions of government in various regards. Actually, we've got one judicial, one executive, and one congressional this week, so really doing the full separation of powers gamut here on Rational Security. And for what we are calling the, we can finally stop talking about Kevin edition. But that doesn't mean we can finally stop talking about Kevins, as we may get into a little bit uh, in our first topic, uh, as there may be more Kevin yet in our life. But for now, our first topic is Master of the House doling out the harm, ready with the handshake and a face palm. That didn't work. 
quiet as well. <laughs> <laughs> I hoped it would. <laughs> the rhythm was a little off. It's fine. Over the weekend, Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy narrowly avoided a government shutdown, but this week it cost him the speakership as Democrats joined a block of Republicans to vote in favor of a motion to vacate the office. What does this say about the state of the House and what does it mean for Biden's legislative agenda moving forward? Topic two, serving life to 20. As the Supreme Court begins its new term under increased scrutiny for ethical lapses, several members of Congress have once again introduced legislation that would impose 18-year term limits on the court's members, among other reforms. But would this proposal fix the problem, and is it constitutional? And topic three, a foreign confluence operation. Washington has been in a tizzy this week with scandalizing reports of an Iranian influence operation that purportedly sought to influence U.S. policy through several prominent scholars of Iranian descent, some of whom now serve in the Biden administration or are close to beleaguered Iran special envoy Rob O'Malley, whose security clearance is currently suspended. What should we make of this story? Is there as much fire to match as much smoke as it appears to be putting out? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. I don't even know where to begin. What a, what a couple of days! It's I mean, been. truly. So yes, for for those of you who uh, live under rocks but still listen to podcasts, I have to say, I think that like this is even permeating through people's <laughs> rocks. I have like a personal barometer for how big a congressional story is by the number of my group chats that start asking me questions about it. And there are there are some that are very Washington centric. And then there are other ones that are not. Uh, and this definitely this definitely broke into the non DC group chats level of of interest. The fantasy f- football chats, the sorted sports keeping up things, <laughs> high school friends all inquiring about Kevin. All of, of the above. So yeah, so so to to back up, everyone, including I believe, uh, at least in the last week or so, Molly thought that there was going to be a government shutdown. There was not. We have been granted a stay of execution for somewhere between 45 and 47 days. I'm not sure why people can't agree. Thanks to the willingness of one former, but then Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, to pass a short-term spending bill with the help of Democratic votes. That victory was, of course, short-lived as everybody's favorite Florida man, Representative Matt Gates, uh, decided to make good on a threat that he's kind of been dangling over McCarthy for a while and call for what's called a motion to vacate the chair, uh, which under the terms under which McCarthy had sort of agreed to as a condition of his speakership, any one member of the House can essentially boot the speaker and then they'll have to, you know, get get voted back into position, which McCarthy then could not do. Now we are speakerless. It is unprecedented, I believe, actually unprecedented, unlike many things that people say are unprecedented. So, so Molly, uh, first off, I hope that I got things at least directionally right in that summary. You did. Okay, excellent. And secondly, what's going on? What happens now? Please help. WTF, man. <laughs> Um, there, there's a lot. Uh, there's a lot here. Quinta, you did a great job of uh, sort of hitting, uh, hitting the like big important points. So, like Quinta got the basics, and I think listeners can get kind of the basics of what is happening from a lot of sources. So, what I might do now is sort of talk about three things that are kind of 
relevant here that are perhaps of particular interest to rational security listeners. And then like we can zoom back out um, if you guys want to talk more about other things. But the first thing that I want to talk a little bit about, because it bears on kind of the question of where we go next, um, is that we are we are without an elected Speaker of the House. We are not without someone performing some of the functions of the Speaker uh, of the House. And, and the reason that's true um, is because of a, um, a change to the House rules or was made 20 years ago for kind of continuity of government reasons, which I know is something that is like of interest to certainly the other three people on this uh, on this uh, podcast and perhaps to some listeners as well. So uh, let me talk a little bit about that, which is that in 2003, out of concern for a possible sort of mass incapacitating event like 9-11, the House adopted a rules change that said that when someone's elected speaker at the beginning of a Congress, one of the things that they do is submit a list to the clerk of the House. That's like a non-elected person who sort of has a lot of administrative responsibilities that says, if there is a vacancy in the office of the speakership, here's a list of people numbered one through N um, who are to assume the speakership. That list was secret. Uh, We hadn't really talked about that list until like two weeks ago. But once there was a vacancy in the office of the speakership, and this was like sort of a anticlimactic moment, um, Steve Womack, who had been presiding over the debate, sort of steps aside and up the stairs um, to the rostrum walks Patrick McHenry of North Carolina. That is how we all learned that he was the first person on this list. And so he is now um, acting as the speaker pro tem, the speaker pro pro tempore. And there's sort of an open question about what powers he has in this role. I and many other folks prior to yesterday took the view that the the rule that allows him to ascend the speakership in this way empowers him with the full authorities of the office of the speaker and not just, say, enough authority to effectuate the election of a new speaker. McHenry appears to be behaving in a much more limited way. He recessed the House subject to the call of the chair yesterday, has said that his plan is for the House not to come back to have votes until they come probably next Wednesday to try and elect a new speaker. He's not referring bills to committee. So whether that remains how he behaves is, I think, an open question. But it's really important from like an institutional perspective, particularly because we are in unprecedented waters here. And so anything that he does sort of becomes precedent. And that may well um, bear on like the future where we could have an actual emergency of the kind that the rule originally envisioned. That's one thing that I'll say that folks might be find interesting. Second thing I'll say is that sort of wrapped up in all of this is this question of additional funding for aid to Ukraine. Um, So the measure that the Congress passed and President Biden signed over the weekend to avoid a government shutdown does not include additional aid for Ukraine. The Senate's version of a continuing resolution was going to have, I believe it was $6 billion for um, Ukraine. um, And that got set by the wayside when the House sort of came in on Saturday and said, we're going to pass this thing that keeps the government open without Ukraine money. The speakership imbroglio puts the prospects of future funding for Ukraine, I think, on shakier footing. I'm still not, I'm not prepared to say it's impossible because everything is super fluid right now. But just know that that is all mixed up in all of this. And then the last thing I'll say that, again, folks might find interesting is that one of the big questions that people have about what happened yesterday is why did 
Democrats choose to actively vote to remove McCarthy, as opposed to, say, sitting on their hands, um, which would have had the effect of keeping McCarthy because of the way that these votes work, that basically if Democrats had chosen not to vote, it would have become a vote just of the folks within the Republican conference. And McCarthy had the overwhelming support of, of those people. Why do Democrats choose to actively do this? The sort of big answer is that they all seem to be very mad at Kevin McCarthy, like deeply mad at him. They have different reasons for being deeply mad at him. But for some of them, the source of the like deep anger has to do with how um, he and Republican leaders approached the NDAA over the summer. So the NDAA had come out of the House Armed Services Committee with like enormous bipartisan support. I believe it was a vote of 58 to one. And then under pressure from some of the same dissidents in the conference, McCarthy and other House Republican leaders consented to putting all kinds of things in the NDAA that made it very hard for Democrats to vote for it. And so that, again, for some Democrats, that seems to have been kind of a red line into like Kevin McCarthy is untrustworthy. We can't work with him. And this is why we are going to go along with this move to depose him. And one clarifying question on that, Molly, I've read some reports suggesting that McCarthy had kind of refused to bargain with Democrats in leading into that, and that contributed to this. Is that is that more a sense of that he wasn't willing to make any clear compromises to secure their cooperation, either in sitting on their hands or even affirmatively voting for him, knowing yes. sitting on their hands would be easier? Was that part of the equation or is that reporting a little confused? So it's unclear, um, sort of what was on offer, what wasn't on offer, whether there were talks. At the end of the day, I think if McCarthy had been interested in doing this, it's not clear that he was. If he had been interested in making concessions to some Democrats, he might have gotten their votes or gotten them to sort of behave in such a way that preserved his speakership in the short term. But going repeatedly to Democrats to sustain a procedural majority in the House is just not tenable for McCarthy or any other Republican leader. Absent some sort of like fundamental restructuring of the way the chamber is governed that I at least am skeptical that we're going to see. Like if you have the speakership, you need a durable procedural majority from your own party to govern. And I just don't even if he had dealt with Democrats to stave off sort of execution in the immediate term, I don't think it would have been a durable solution to his political problems. Well, I just want to follow up on that. So what, what, why is that, right? And, and I ask, again, quite ignorant of these issues, so I'll, I'll sort of take your word for it. But at least in other countries, in parliamentary systems, especially with multi-party systems where you have more than two parties, you often have these like very complicated power sharing agreements and arrangements. Why, why is that not doable in the House, especially given at least my understanding of the House is that unlike the Senate, which is all sorts of complicated procedural rules in the House, like fundamentally anything can be done with majority vote at any moment. Right. So that's why part of why I said like absent a fundamental sort of reorganization of the way the House is governed, you sort of need a durable procedural majority in your own party. It's because like everything is organized by party in the House. Membership on committees, like who controls the rooms, who gets more staff on committees, everything is along sort of partisan lines with the assumption that one party has a majority and the other party does not. And so for you to kind of reorient that and, and create some sort of durable bipartisan speakership, the ripple effects of that would be quite large. And it's not something you can just sort of like turn on with a switch. Um, in terms of simply like governing, 
if McCarthy were to, say, have gone to Democrats to help him keep his speakership, and they did that, next week they want to bring a spending bill to the, the Republicans want to bring a spending bill to the floor. As we saw with the defense appropriations bill in September, like some number of Republicans might vote against the effort to bring that to the floor. McCarthy goes to Democrats again. Democrats say, okay, here's, we'll help you bring it to the floor. Here's what we want in exchange. Um, the more times he does that, the more he starts to piss off not just the people who are already mad at him in the Republican conference, but also other people in the Republican conference. Um, and so in that sense, like it sort of snowballs and you don't actually get like you, you're only putting off the point where you no longer have control of your own conference. So how what does this mean, though, for the Democratic agenda that they, we have that is still pending? Right. We still have a Ukraine assistance requirement. We still need to keep government operating. We still got end of year omnibus legislation. Can I just, can I interrupt you for a second, Scott, and just say that like, it's worth noting that you just referred to this as like the Democrats agenda, as opposed to just like, these are the things that the US government and the United States Congress are supposed to do. Like, this is not, this is not, these are like, and I'm not trying to give you a hard time. Like, these are the fundamental responsibilities of governing. Like, Republicans in the House have a different vision for what government spending should look like the democrats in the house and the senate and president biden do but fundamentally like part of holding the majority in one chamber of the united states congress is that you are supposed to do things that say keep the government operating and fulfill our responsibility to our international partners and so like I just really want to emphasize that, that like these aren't just things that Democrats want or Democrats should want. They are the fundamental responsibilities of governing the United States of America. Sadly, sadly, listeners can't see just the amount of gesticulation that is coming from Molly Reynolds right now, which, you know, Molly Reynolds is a, is a pretty, I think, fair to say buttoned up person. But there's there's a lot of hand talking right now. We, we, really, we got Molly going. But I mean, like I say agenda actually like kind of consciously, right? Because like all these things can happen on like a diverse array of terms, right? Like Ukraine assistance isn't a must do, right? That isn't a policy agenda. I think it's a very important one, um, but it's not a keep the government open, poor governing function. No, but I do think that there has been pretty bipartisan support for doing that. And like it is another consequence of a faction within the Republican conference, both in the House and increasingly in the Senate, who are willing to sort of hold some of these other responsibilities of governing hostage to try and effectuate change on this one thing. I understand that. And and it's fair to say, if I were to try to assign moral blame or like evaluate you know, Democrats or Republicans, who's more responsible? Uh, you know, I think this wouldn't be the right tack to say, like, focus on Democratic strategy. But in terms of getting to outcomes, I think the Democratic Party, because the Biden administration, in the White House, if nothing else, if not kind of their broader view of governing, has a stronger impetus, a right founded one, I think, to try and keep the government doing the things we think it should do. Uh, and then some on top of that, that people may disagree, reasonably disagree on. And they need Congress to do that. They need the House to do that um, within a pretty short time frame. So how does the Democrats' action actually fit into that strategy? Like, what's their strategy moving forward? McCarthy at least seemed like 
he kept the government open. He had, you know, you weren't happy with him, but certain core things he was able to move. And we just don't, it's not clear to me what the strategy is to come out of this. If you really think some sort of power sharing arrangements totally off the table, then it seems like your best case scenario is you're pushing the Republican caucus to unite around an even more conservative leader or somebody who's even, who's equally beholden, if not otherwise compromised to the far right faction that's causing these problems. Yeah. So first, let me just say that like, as of when we are recording this, I think the range of possible outcomes in terms of who is the next elected Speaker of the House is quite wide. I also think it's possible that like McHenry ends up sort of like sitting as the Speaker pro tem for a while. So I just- That's gonna, part of what I, I was going to ask exactly. Um, I don't, I, I like all of these things are, I think are on the table. In terms of sort of what Democrats may have been calculating here, let me put it this way. I woke up yesterday morning thinking that one possible outcome here even maybe like narrowly the most likely outcome was that a small number of Democrats would break with the rest of the caucus and vote to keep McCarthy in power was sort of the knowledge that there's actually a bigger fight to come over funding the government for the balance of the year. And if this is what happened when he kept the government open for 45 days, maybe there's value in keeping McCarthy in charge until we have the bigger fight um, over funding the government, Ukraine, a bunch of other stuff, and then assume that like he is deposed at that point. Turns out I was wrong about that. Um, and I think, again, part of what seems to have driven Democrats here is the idea that Kevin McCarthy was just like fundamentally untrustworthy. I think different parts of the caucus had different sort of red lines, different things that they can point to that say that like McCarthy said he was going to do X and he did Y instead. And now like he cannot be worked with. I think for some of them, it goes back to his handling of January 6th. I think for some of them, it uh, involves, um, like I said, the NDAA. For some of them, it involves going back on the spending levels agreed to in the um, legislation addressing the debt limit. For some of them, it involves the impeachment inquiry. I'm making air quotes there because McCarthy had said, like, we're not going to do an impeachment inquiry without a vote of the full house. And then like two weeks ago, he said, oh, we're doing an impeachment inquiry without a vote of the full house. For some of them, it was like his move on the continuing resolution where he like arrived at like 11 a.m. on Saturday and said, here's this thing that we're going to vote on as soon as humanly possible. Um, Enter the Jamal Bowman fire alarm story. Um, And so all of these things for different members of the Democratic caucus, I think, pointed to like, I can't trust Kevin McCarthy. He is not a reliable negotiating partner. I have no interest in keeping him in the speakership. Whether there is anyone else on the face of the earth who could be a more trustworthy negotiating partner with the current House Republican conference behind him, I do not know. But I think that's like how we got to where we are. So is this a situation where McCarthy was dealt a bad hand and just sort of couldn't win? Or was he also dealt a bad hand and played it badly? I tend to think it's the latter. Like, I want to note that like there were, I think, two really important decision points this year. One was the legislation to raise the debt limit. And one was the um, decision to bring something to the floor uh, that would keep the government open, where like, those are those are really important things for the country. And Kevin McCarthy, like did the responsible thing. And so I, like, I want to put that on the table. And if you frankly like go back longer in Kevin McCarthy's career, I think you start to see that he was not necessarily well matched for leading 
a conference of this kind. And I think one way to think about this, um, someone posed this question to me over the weekend after he brought the um, the bill, the continuing resolution to the floor. It was like, oh, was this actually just like a brilliant strategic move by him? And I said, I wouldn't give him that much credit. And I would compare it to how we would have thought about a similar move by John Boehner. So John Boehner, like, also was managing a very fractious conference, but had a, like, very different sort of approach to it, whereby he would sort of often let the dissidents in the conference, like, try to, like, work themselves out, like, let them, he would bring things to the floor that they wanted that he knew weren't going to become law. But then when push came to shove, it was like, no, like, this is the thing that we're going to do. Whereas, like, Kevin McCarthy, like, kept, I think, sort of floundering a little bit to the end. Like he brought a continuing resolution to the floor in the House on Friday that was like very conservative, like was not going to clear the Senate under any circumstances. And so I just, I think definitely like structurally, the House Republican Conference is basically ungovernable. And also it's not clear to me that Kevin McCarthy's like particular brand of political skills was well matched to leading that kind of group under divided party control when Democrats have a majority in the Senate and there's a Democratic president in the White House. So like what happens next, right? I mean, even if you have someone who's better at this than Kevin McCarthy, you still have the ungovernable, you know, eight person caucus or whatever. And, and like you said, it's not as if they can just do some sort of coalition government with the Democrats, at least without real house restructuring. And what do we know about Patrick McHenry out of curiosity? The fact that he chose to wear a bow tie when he apparently knew he was about to become strong, Speaker of the House strong. does not invest anyone in confidence in him. He wears a bow tie all the time. Uh, as a bow tie disaster. lover myself, I, I'm here for Team Bowtie. I will say the thing that I really noticed was that he like he has the gavel and he like slams it um down like he's trying to squash something. I mean, I think that honestly, if I were him. I would have been that angry about everything that had just transpired too. So two things that I think we should know about Patrick McHenry, which I think both help explain like, why is he the person who was at the top of Kevin McCarthy's list? And also why I think he is like trying to very gently um, and gingerly negotiate the um, the current situation is that number one, he was um, kind of House Republicans, one of House Republicans lead architects of the deal to raise the debt limit. There's a, a story that I particularly uh, enjoyed from the reporting after uh, that legislation passed about how he and uh, Shalanda Young, who was the lead negotiator for the White House, used to talk every morning after they dropped their respective um, young children off at daycare. Very relatable. And so uh, uh, so he, he was deeply involved in sort of figuring out how to like make all those pieces fit together. That I think makes him unpopular among some elements of the Republican conference. The other thing is that, and I, I think about this all the time, um, about a year and a half ago uh, in April of 2022, he came out and said at that point that he was not interested in running for Republican leadership, for running for an elected position in the Republican House leadership, because he did not want to have to deal with whipping votes on raising the debt limit or keeping the government open. So like he, he was very prescient, like he could see this coming. Um, And so take that for what you will. Um, But like he had, he has that sort of deep understanding of the challenges of the current um, House Republican conference. Do you know what happens next? I don't know. 
like logistically, the current plan is for the Republicans to meet on Tuesday for a candidate forum to hear from the people who want to run for speaker to uh, try to have a vote on the floor on Wednesday. Who knows if they will meet that? Um, you've started to see people who are like indicating interest. Um, Jim Jordan has like officially entered the race. Um, Steve Scalise is widely expected to enter the race. Um, Kevin Hearn, who's the chair of the um, Republican Study Committee, which is like a large group of conservatives in the House, um, has expressed some interest. I just really want to know if they repurpose the only Kevin buttons if he decides to enter the race. But I, that's that's the most I got for you in terms of where we're going. So if we get to 45 or 47 days. November 17th. November 17th. Uh, that's, that's what we're, we're, we're headed for. Thank you. And there's only um, McHenry there as a speaker pro tempore. To what extent does that mean that there? it's more likely there's going to be a shutdown? Um, I know you said that there's questions about his sort of parliamentary power, which it seems like he's going to go, going his own way. I assume he'll probably have a harder time kind of navigating. I, feel, I think that like, I think uh, the sort of limited interpretation of the powers that he has, or I should say the powers that he is choosing to exercise, um, I think that becomes less durable the longer he stays as the Speaker pro tem. Like, I don't think we could get all the way to the middle of November with him just doing what he's been doing now, which is like recessing the House and bringing the House back in to have a vote on the speakership. So I, I feel like that piece of this would be likely to change if we got to the point where he was still around in um, in the middle of November. But again, I, I do think that like the question of what kind of resolution could the spending process come to if the dissidents in the conference are this willing to, I mean, I guess, let me put it this way, much like part of what motivated Democrats seemed to be like personal anger at Kevin McCarthy. It's a little unclear to me how much of what was motivating the dissident Republicans is McCarthy specific versus how someone else would try to navigate similar waters. Before we move on to the next topic, I just wanted to say, um, I think Matt Iglesias actually has summed this up pretty well in his uh, in his newsletter. It's funny, mostly. Also sad, but funny. That's kind of how I feel about this whole thing. That is not how I feel. <laughs> I think the next few weeks are going to be miserable. <laughs> but we'll see. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Well, having talked about the end of one person's time in office in the first branch of government, let us now turn to the third branch of government. I don't know if we actually call it that, but Article Three courts, uh, where we have seen some interesting proposals rolled out in relation to the duration an office of Supreme Court justices who currently, of course, serve a lifetime appointment like most federal judges, but where there's been long been a discussion as to whether justice of the Supreme Court should be limited in term or in, time, in their time in office. And we've now seen uh, two different legislative proposals, one recently this past week, another one a few months ago introduced in the House that would impose different versions of this of term limits. Most of them center around a longstanding 
proposal that I associate with the group Fix the Court, although it's in some ways predates, I think, some of their work on this issue, but they've kind of been the advocates for it, that would install an 18-year term limit for Supreme Court justices, um, allow justices to stay on as senior members of the court after that, much like uh, appellate courts currently uh, and district courts to some terms where they can take a reduced docket and play a role, but they uh, don't have the same full scope of authority as a full-time member of the court, particularly uh, you know at the appellate level in terms of when you're dealing with an en banc hearing, senior judges don't participate. Um, presumably, I think the, the proposals differ a little bit on this or a little unclear, but that would be similar in this proposal. You would have the nine most currently appointed justices serving as kind of the ultimate Supreme Court, even though the other justices will be involved, might be able to fill in on matters, things along those lines. We've seen a lot of talk about Supreme Court reform the last few years. Uh, we, of course, saw the Biden administration open with a big commission on it that did consider this issue, among others, um, but kind of passed the buck a little bit, didn't really endorse anything, noted constitutional concerns, but I don't think drew any fine lines for or against any of these proposals, as I recall. Alan, let me start with you, and I'm curious about your thoughts. What do you make of these proposals that are coming out? Is this actually something that's colorable, that's a constitutional, that is is wise? Um, and is it likely to make a difference at this point? The Supreme Court is kind of having a, a crisis of confidence arising out of ethics issues, but is that likely to move the needle on these sorts of proposals more than we've seen in the past where they've basically had no legs? Yeah. So I, I, I don't know how to think about the politics of this exactly. So I just kind of, it's hard for me to kind of comment or predict on whether or not this, this has legs. Um, you know, obviously it's not, it's not the sort of thing that's going to, you know, be, be folded into some appropriations bill, right? I mean, we're looking at a multi-year process of you know, working this through probably multiple Congresses and, and probably as part of presidential elections, frankly, um, which is kind of how it should be. I mean, this is not a, a, a constitutional amendment, but it is a, a, a fundamental change to the structure of government. And therefore, it's the sort of thing that should take some time to kind of percolate through American democracy. On the merits, I think this is a fabulous idea. I think it makes a ton of sense in terms of defusing one of the great pressure points of the Supreme Court, which is that you know, every retirement or death, uh, as it sort of increasingly is, um, of a justice becomes this sort of nationwide monumental event that creates terrible feelings all around, um, subjects American law to just way too much random demographic contingency, and also makes the stakes of elections, sort of presidential elections, even higher than they sort of otherwise would be. Um, and so the idea of basically guaranteeing, and again, the, the details of this differ from bill to bill, but the general idea behind you know, these sorts of bills is that you know, every president should be able to predictably nominate a set number of justices per term, let's say two per term. And because the justices are only serving for a fixed term, they're, again, actuarially speaking, much less likely to die in office, frankly. And that's a real concern, right? Because, of course, deaths are not predictable. I say this as an actuary. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? And and so you just take a lot of the high drama uh, out of the Supreme Court, and you also ensure that there is, I wouldn't say democratic accountability, because the justices are still unelected and they still have life tenure and salary protection and all of that. Um, but you have a more regular mechanism by which the political process the democratic process can slowly sort of alter the court's composition over time, which is like, of course, I mean, what you want, right? You do need the court to reflect, you know, mass public opinion over a long period of time. Otherwise, it just becomes unsustainable. Constitutionally, I actually don't think this presents a lot of constitutional issues. I think this is actually a very elegant solution to the problem of life tenure. 
for a very long time in American history, Congress has had a lot of granular control over the Supreme Court, right? The Constitution sets out a Supreme Court, and it sets out its original jurisdiction, and it sets out its you know life tenure and salary protections. But that's basically all it sets out. And it basically leaves everything else to Congress, either explicitly, like, you know, it's appellate jurisdiction, or implicitly, like, the actual salaries, or the number of clerks, or the number of justices, or do they get a nice building or not, or to give an example from the beginning of the country's history, do they have to ride circuit, right? Literally get on horses and ride around the country like they used to. Um, a fact that was subject to a number of back and forths, actually, in the early 19th century, um, Judiciary Act of 1801 and 1802, all the sort of stuff, right? More recently, um, Congress and sort of historically has decreased the number of cases the Supreme Court has to hear, uh, thereby giving the court more and more control over its docket. Again, something that is, you know, by congressional uh, fiat. So all of this suggests to me that a change of, well, each justice gets to be a regular justice for 18 years and then is a senior justice or, again, whatever the case is, but still is a judge, still has some role to play, still gets salary and hearing protections. I don't feel like that's actually, frankly, structurally any more extreme than making justices ride circuit, right? Or telling justices what cases they have to hear. And if Congress can do those things, I don't see why I can't do this thing. Now, at the end of the day, you know, I, I teach con law to, to 1Ls at the University of Minnesota. And, you know, I, I tell them, look, at the end of the day, we don't know what the Constitution means until the Supreme Court tells us. Like, that's the system we live in. So I can't sit here and say that this would definitely pass constitutional muster. But I think it would. I think most court watchers think it would. I think there's a lot of consensus across sort of liberal and conservative academics on this point. Um, and I also think there's probably five votes for this on the Supreme Court. Right. Uh, I, I think there's sort of enough recognition that this is just a crappy system. And I don't think the justices, frankly, love this either. I mean, obviously, it's fun to be a justice for your whole life. But, you know, I, I think they recognize what damage is happening to the court. Now, just to, to finish up, you know, you ask, is this going to solve the court's problems? No. Right. It's not going to solve the problem of ethics issues. It's not going to solve the problem that, frankly, way too much of American politics is ultimately adjudicated by the Supreme Court. It's not going to I mean, it's not going to solve any of those problems, um, but it's a long term reform that over generations is probably necessary for the Supreme Court to survive as a powerful independent institution. And so I truly, truly hope like in a sort of, you know, deeply earnest, naive schoolhouse rock way that like we pass this thing because I think it would be sort of one of the great good government reforms of, of my lifetime. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Molly, let's, let's, before we dig back in the constitutionality, let's talk about the politics. Like, are these proposals that have any sort of legs or like, or is this really the, the, the sort of situation where these guys are floating these bills 
getting the ideas out there, seeing where support is, you know, maybe they'll turn into something years down the line, but this isn't a serious proposal right now. Yeah. I mean, for we spent 30 minutes at the top of this podcast talking about the utter dysfunction in the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, and so I am not um, optimistic on the prospects of really very much of anything um, in the in the short term. And obviously, we have a long history of people sort of introducing ideas and building support for them over kind of in a long, slow process, and then waiting for the sort of right political um, political moment. I think in addition, um, and I think Alan got a little bit to this at the end of his thoughts. So in the process of Congress sort of abdicating a lot of power to the, the courts over time, that has happened I think on a bipartisan basis, but I also think that like for the contemporary Republican Party, there's this sort of connection between judicial appointments and the Republican Party project that that just makes it very hard for me to imagine um, get this or a lot of other plausible court reforms getting uh, bipartisan support. The last thing that I'll say in terms of like situating this in like a much bigger political um, conversation is I do think that the court, the Supreme Court right now, is like feeling a lot of political pressure uh, from outside the court. And like they are in small but consequential ways changing their behavior in response to that. So Quinta and I have had a long running interest to obsession with John Eastman's emails um, in advance of January 6th. Uh, This week, the court denied cert in uh, a case related to like where Eastman was challenging the ability of his employer to turn those emails over to the January 6th committee. Notably, Clarence Thomas, who was, if I think the subject himself of some in some of the emails, certainly his wife was, was recused from that, like recused himself from that decision, which is both good and also something that we should remark upon because I'm not sure it's something that would have definitely happened had we not just got had we had we not just gone through like months of the news cycles that we have um, around Clarence Thomas and other members um, of the court. So that's a little bit orthogonal to this specific question of the political feasibility of this um, or similar proposals. But I do think we are in like an interesting political moment, and even if it doesn't mean anything for what Congress does in this space. I do think we are seeing like the court itself react to some of the public pressure that they're that they're experiencing. Yeah, I think that's really crucial. And I was going to make the same point that, you know, it seems pie in the sky to imagine Congress passing anything uh, of this level of ambition currently. But we are seeing maybe at least some signs that public pressure on the court is resulting in a response on the part of the justices in the form of this recusal by Clarence Thomas. Elena Kagan recently made comments at a public event saying that she would support an ethics code for the justices. I think, you know, it's far too early to say, but I think there is at least some reason to wonder whether the court is a little bit shell-shocked by the backlash to some of its more radical decisions um, and is trying to chart a more moderate quote-unquote path, which I think is just a sign that, you know, things change, right? 
that the the current state of things is not the way that they're always going to be. And the the thing that I will say that I keep thinking of here is the the switch in time that saves nine, right? So the the sort of flip-flop on the Supreme Court in the New Deal that essentially saved the New Deal and saved the court also from uh, FDR's court packing scheme. And that too is a moment where the court sort of was on a collision course politically with what the executive branch wanted to do and sort of the needs of American society at a time. And I don't know historically if it was clear what was going to happen, but something was going to break and something did. And I had thought that we were just going to continue down that collision course without anything changing. And I didn't know what the ultimate collision would look like, but I am now wondering whether we may actually be beginning to see movement. All of which is to say that, you know, I agree that this is going to be a long-term push if it does happen, but it does feel like, you know, the fact that court reform is not a crazy idea and the fact that it's no longer confined to folks on the left, I think is, uh, I I, I wouldn't say positive, but a, a moderately positive sign. Yeah, before we move on back, I do want to turn back to the constitutional question, which I think is really interesting. And I actually feel like there's a little bit of a kind of certain category errors or in the conversation around this. A lot of the commentary I've seen seems to think there's a real legal difference between whether you apply this to existing justices versus future justices. And I don't see how that makes any legal sense, really, because it's not like this is a contract. This is a constitutional obligation on office holders. So, you know, if you can adjust it for for cur- for future you should be able to adjust it for current ones there's no constitutional or pardon me contractual entitlement it'd be different if this were like a job contract but that's not what this is right the limitation comes from constitution applies to the office holders so i don't think that actually makes a lot of sense and that i've seen that all over the place in the conversation around these and i think it's very beguiling it may make a big political difference but i'm not sure constitutionally it really makes much of a difference and i will say i think actually the biggest as somebody who i like these proposals much like alan i've liked them for a long time i've followed them for years and have have uh you know happened sign anytime anybody endorses them, put my name on it, because I think they're good ideas and there are various ways you can go about it. But I think there is kind of a a bit of a, a framing issue when we think of it as a term limit, precisely because that really runs up against this good behavior requirement that's basically people have interpreted as a, as a life tenure. And when you start categorizing people as senior justices, which actually these legislative proposals do, they are saying like, oh, we're going to change the size of the Supreme Court. My way, a better way to do this would just to be change the jurisdiction and composition of the court to say like the nine most senior justices are the ones who get final approval and establish something like an en banc procedure where maybe the other justices still have a role or a play, but the nine most recently appointed justices, and then you appoint them at a regular two-year intervals so that your nine most recent are the nine most appointed, you end up with basically a justice, senior justice system, but you don't have to go with this idea of changing status and changing job title, which runs much more up uh, directly against the idea of life tenure. When you change the structure, you change the jurisdiction, You change, that's actually like very much things Congress has done pretty regularly, not in a long time, um, but certainly early in American history, as, as Alan's already mentioned, that's not that foreign a concept at all, um, but actually pretty clear historical parallels. So I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of constitutional legs here, but it's the political barrier and it's just seeing when we'll have a moment. But uh, you know, we have a lot of surprising political moments these days. So who knows, maybe one of these will, will open an avenue to this sort of change. So let's go now from a topic in which I have very strong and very clear views to a topic in which I am utterly confused, but fortunately have the benefit of my good friends to help me out. Let's talk about this 
maybe bombshell reporting, maybe nothing burger reporting uh, that has come out in the last uh, few days. You know, I've read a bunch of the articles about this. I've read them twice. I'm still actually like legitimately confused about what the story is. As far as I can tell, what this is basically about is a series of American Iran specialists, some of whom are actually Iranian Americans, some of whom are just Iran specialists in the policy world, in the academic world, who around in 2014 um, got together and cooperated in some way or another, sometimes kind of informally, sometimes by getting actual funding from the Iranian government to kind of develop American Iran policy that one can say falls on the dovish side of the spectrum of possible American Iran stuff. Now, those individuals kind of loosely centered around uh, Rob Malley, uh, who became the chief U.S. envoy for what became the Iran nuclear deal. His current situation is actually somewhat unclear. He apparently has been, I don't know if it's suspended exactly, from his position because of some security issues maybe involving... I believe his security clearance has been suspended. Has and been so suspended. he's on a leave of absence pending the resolution of that suspension. Yes, though it's again not entirely clear what the details are there. Right. So I, I suspect that the involvement with or the communications between these individuals and the Iranian government was probably at some to, to some degree understood at the time. But um, what has come out in the last week are actual emails between the Iranian government and these individuals. And I should say some of whom or many of whom later became um, sort of important folks in the Obama administration and then in the Biden administration, which, of course, relative to the Trump administration has taken a much more cooperative stance towards Iran, though hardly, I think, a extreme dovish one. Now, the emails that have been released, again, this this feels like it's really in the eye of the beholder, but they clearly show, at the very least, a lot of enthusiasm and interest and in some ways, a little bit of sucking up and flattery, as you might expect, uh, if you're trying to get a foreign government to work with you on a you know big project. And this has created sort of howls of protest on the right, especially among Iran hawks. Basically, you know, in the most extreme versions, accusing these individuals of being Iranian sleeper agents who have now infiltrated sort of the top levels of the US government. And then on the other hand, you have folks, particularly those who think we should have a more conciliatory approach to Iran, saying that this is a nothing burger, these emails are no big deal, this is exactly what you'd expect from academics and think tankers who are trying, you know, and, and potential future diplomats who are trying to work together um, and trying to bring Iran into the rules-based international order and so on and so forth. Again, I continue to be very confused as to how to understand these emails, and in particular to try to separate um, the substantive question, which is, I think, not on the table for this discussion, of what should America's Iran diplomacy be substantively from the procedural question, which I understand is, which which I understand to be kind of the main thing we're trying to figure out of, is it appropriate for, you know, non-diplomats, but who then might one day become diplomats to work this closely with a foreign government like Iran to develop what they view as good US-Iran policy? And I'm just a bit flummoxed because everyone is screaming so loudly on both sides of this debate. So Scott, you scream at a moderate level. So scream some wisdom for us. I think this is a classic case where there is a ton of smoke and relatively little fire, not no fire, but relatively little fire. And people are, uh, you know, 
attributing the fire in directions uh, that is useful for them and their pre-existing agendas. Look, I mean, the basic story here is that there was an effort by uh, an Iranian diplomat based in Europe to reach out to uh, and establish contact with a number of primarily, uh, actually, I think almost entirely in this Iran, the actual Iran Experts Initiative, which is what this program has become labeled as, primarily scholars of Iranian descent working on Iran issues and to begin systems of exchange and conversation with them. And it's worth bearing in mind, you know, this is something that would not be unusual if it weren't Iran. It's a little. It, it, it's. It sounds. It's just not that wild, right? Like if you were to have, you know, uh, is Israel, right? Working with a number of scholars, some of whom might have family in Israel or have otherwise have connections to Israel, that wouldn't be that surprising that the government would keep contact with them, have meetings with them, have discussions with them on on a variety of issues. It's more controversial here because it is Iran and, and is Iranian government officials, and particularly it's become controversial because we have these discussions where we have these independent scholars, um, again, some of whom later went on to play a role in primarily the Biden administration, um, and then how many have ties to Rob Malley, who had roles in the Obama administration and the Biden administration, is the framing and the way they frame their engagement. Um, They have a very deferential tone. At times, they talk about working towards common interests. There's definitely a effort to share ideas. Uh, At one point, um, one of the experts shares a draft op-ed. He later explained this more recently as saying, I was doing this because they had criticized me for being too critical of the Iranian position and other pieces, and I was trying to show, but I have this forthcoming one that tries to reflect sort of your views. And at at various times, kind of asked for their viewpoints on particular things, going to particular meetings, having sorts of discussions. While I don't think some of the choices of ways they frame these interactions or language is, is maybe certainly in hindsight looks bad. And I think maybe it'd been maybe a portrait at the time. I don't find any of it that unusual for the moment this was in. This was a time, 2013, 14, where a lot of people, particularly on the progressive side of the calculus, A, thought we were on the verge of a major rapprochement with Iran that could dramatically transform regional politics. And that part of that was the idea that there were actually, despite many real disagreements, which none of these scholars shy away from, none of them are really firmly in Iran's corner in any meaningful way, right? There are people who actively work uh, and oppose Iran on a variety of issue fronts, but may perhaps not as stridently or single-notedly as some people would like. They nonetheless said, we think we have some common interests with Iran in terms of reaching a deal, particularly around the nuclear program, um, which was a major priority to go to the Obama administration at the time. And part of getting that goal is establishing, A, establishing a working relationship with Iran so we can better understand what positions are going to be amenable to the Iranians and can work towards a sort of consensus position. Not unusual second track diplomacy sort of stuff, honestly. And then also it's happening in an environment where there's tons of extremely vocal, extremely hostile American voices against Iran criticizing this very vocally. And there is frustration on the Iranian parts about those voices uh, drowning out people saying, well, maybe what Iran's asking for in some of these cases is not entirely unreasonable. Maybe there's space for compromise. I'm framing this somewhat in a somewhat maybe generous context. I, I acknowledge that now in part for brevity of this conversation. Uh, you know, like I said, I think there are parts of this where it like exercises some some poor judgment by some of these people and how they frame these things. But that very clearly to, see, to me seems the overarching effort here classic second track diplomacy where they feel like they need to get the Iranians on the hook. So they have to be nice to them. That's be flattering to them in a regional dynamic. It's not unusual to be extremely deferential to older people who are in higher positions of you in government. So a lot of what seems like kind of obsequiousness, I think is 
really just the way regional dynamics work or in these sorts of arrangements. Uh, I've seen it myself uh, in other parts of the Middle East. And an effort to keep the Iranians in, keep lines of communication open, assuage Iranian concerns to keep those lines of communication open. Things you do not see is tasking to these people by the Iranians, is efforts to work towards any sort of common interest that was seen as contrary to American interests, any sort of intelligence gathering, any meaningful way. So the framing you see of people saying these were sleeper agents, and you know, there's a Tablet Magazine um, article in particular that I think is, is very irresponsible in how it frames this operation, describing them as aspiring and being tasked out by Iranian operatives, of which there isn't any evidence of in this story, is people taking a set of facts and then spinning it in a particular direction to undermine, I think, a lot of what these people are working towards and associated with in the Biden administration, which is a move towards a somewhat more stable position with Iran, a little bit more more rapprochement. Frankly, nothing like what the Obama administration was aiming for. I think that's pretty much dead in the water at this point, but a more less zero-sum game relationship. And part of this, the process by which the story came to the fore feeds into the sensitivities about the story, I think, from a lot of people, particularly in progressive foreign policy circles, because there are reports of this having been shopped around by uh, Morgan Ortegas and other people associated with uh, the Trump administration, which, of course, maintained an incredibly hard line on Iran uh, and has reflected a very strong, very vocal contingency of people who really, particularly on the political right, but not exclusively, who really believe in a super hard line position on Iran and are really, really aggressive in going after people who disagree with them um, and uh, don't hesitate to call them people who uh, appease or at some point are working in Iran's interest in various regards. Um, and they see this as lumping in there. I think that might go too far. I think there are lapses of judgment in some of this, but none of it approaches the sort of you know spiring talk that we're seeing. And frankly, I'm not sure any of it really reaches a level where it poses serious security concerns of the sort that people are, are amplifying this up for any of these people. Who knows? You know, I, I also don't know for that reason whether it's related to Mali's security clearance issue or not. We'll have to wait to find out. We don't have enough information on that. But that's been tied into the story as well. Uh, so it, it's it's people using the smoke to their own effects. Yeah, I mean, I will say so. I, I mean, I think you're right, Scott, that ultimately this comes down to a sort of disagreement about whether or not it's acceptable to engage in diplomacy with Iran or not. I do think that from my perspective, there's kind of an interesting like journalistic story here. Obviously, we've had a lot of conversations in the last few years about the propriety and practice of reporting on the basis of leaks when the leaked information might come from an entity that itself could potentially have, you know, an, an interest. Um, the original story in Semaphore uh, says that the news outlet obtained this information from a sort of dissident Iranian publication in the UK, but doesn't say where that organization got them from. Uh, ben Smith, who's the editor-in-chief of Semaphore, has gotten into some Twitter tangles saying, you know, we we were transparent about where we got this information and what we know about it. Um, and others, uh, including Laura Rosen, who's a journalist who writes about Middle East issues in Iran, pushing back saying, you know, no, you didn't. <laughs> this you don't really have enough information here, and so I think that that's kind of an interesting thread. Like, at, at what point, what level of transparency do we want when it comes to reporting on leaked information that may come from an entity that has itself has an agenda? Um, especially given the kind of political overtones, as you've as you've pointed out, Scott. I. Also, will say I think it's interesting that you know when a when a big splashy story comes out like this in a small outlet, it is often a useful exercise to say, 
let's wait and see if the big papers match this, right? I think it is notable that I'm not precisely sure when the semaphore story came out, but I think it was late September. Yeah, September 29th, that there hasn't yet been any follow-up reporting in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. That doesn't mean that there won't be, obviously. It's early days yet. But sometimes you can kind of look at that and say like, okay, there's this cache of leaked emails. You know, who else has them? Who is interested in this? Who has reported on it? Who hasn't reported on it? And... It doesn't, like I said, it doesn't necessarily mean anything that the the big guys haven't jumped on this one, but I do think it, it to some extent, shapes my understanding of the story that you can see, you could frame a version of this where it's, you know, you have this kind of upstart publication that's trying to establish itself that maybe has more of an incentive to kind of jump on this information, which that's how the, you know, that's how the world works, right? Always be hustling. Always be hustling, exactly. Um, and look, we know Ben Ben Smith obviously uh, advocated for publish or published the Steele dossier in full during his time at BuzzFeed. So he's taken a pretty aggressive, you know, publish and be damned approach to to this in the past. So I think that that's that's consistent. All of this is a, maybe a little muddled, but I think what I'm trying to say is that I think there's there's just a there's a confluence of kind of different ethics and uh, incentives that are going on here that, to me at least, makes the meta story maybe a little bit more interesting and unfinished than the story that, uh, according to the Semaphore reporting, the emails allegedly show. Yeah, and let, and let me. That's I think that's 100 percent right. And let me say the quiet part out loud, which is underlying all these ethics concerns, like. It seems quite plausible, if not likely to me, that these emails themselves are part of a foreign influence operation, but aimed at undermining the current administration's Iran policy and pushing tack in that direction by discrediting some of the key actors in the administration, right? Like, that's certainly a possibility. We know Israel, Saudi Arabia, UAE, to name three states that have complex intelligence capabilities, very savvy uh, actors. I have no doubt could hack into Yahoo email accounts that we're seeing used here. And frankly, all three routinely engage in monitoring of Iranian communications might have had these for quite a while. You know, they all have an incentive to try and get the Biden administration to tone down its efforts at rapprochement with Iran, which, again, have been pretty limited, actually, compared to what the Obama administration was trying to do and to take a more hardline stance. It's a big part of their policy agenda generally. And, and you know, when you see selectively leaked emails from eight years ago come from private accounts regarding communications of foreign diplomats and these private individuals, you know, how do you get those emails is a fair question. Maybe U.S. intelligence collected them and then the Trump administration people walked out with them, but that itself would pose big legal problems that hopefully diplomatic security and other people are looking into. Um, but if that's not what happened, then these came from some other intelligence service, honestly, almost certainly, particularly because you're talking about multiple actors that it's unlikely any third party is going to have access to otherwise, like, you know, an assistant or somebody who might leak it. So that is its own big bucket of worms that isn't getting talked about enough. You know, the meta narrative is a journalistic ethics. And then there's the the threat those ethics are supposed to protect against, which is that it's being used for part of a, a broader purpose. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Alan, what do you have for us this week? So next month, there's a small, obscure sequel coming out. I am, of course, talking about Dune 2, The Revenge of Paul, which would actually be pretty awesome if that was like the the post-colon thing. Uh, I'm very excited for this movie. Uh, I thought Dune 1 was marvelous. My wife actually had not seen the first Dune movie, and we're going to go make this a date next month to go see Dune 2. So we have been watching Dune 
of the last four days because A, it is a very long movie and B, we have like half an hour of free time after the kid has gone to bed before we get tired. So we watch movies in 30 minute increments, which I have to say is actually a... I mean, obviously, like real cinema heads. It's called are television, just maybe, Alan. Don't like, make well, this an original idea. It's, no, it's, just, it's funny because, like, of course, like, like if you're like a real cinema person, you're horrified at this idea because they're meant to be watched in one movie. And so, like, clearly, by just randomly breaking it up into thirty minute chunks, you are like screwing up the auteur's vision. But like, if you're in your late thirties and you have a toddler and you are tired all the time, it's actually a really nice way to watch a movie. So we've been watching uh, Dune the last couple of days, and people should watch it especially if they've already watched it. Like it's good to remind yourself of the subtleties of the movie before Dune 2, but also it's such a gorgeously constructed movie. Like every shot is so carefully and intentionally and beautifully done that it is one of these movies that really benefits from rewatching. Like the first time you watch it, you just watch it for just the overwhelming spectacle of it all, but then you rewatch it and you just see how it all fits together so, so beautifully. So go rewatch Dune. Yeah, that's my object lesson. In 30-minute intervals. It's a mini-series when you do it like that. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there was a Dune mini-series. What if you watched it for like 45 or 50 minutes and there's like cursing and nudity and more violence? And, get... <laughs> and no ad breaks. <laughs> and no ad breaks. The ultimate evolution. Oh, boy. Come on. Am I the only one that likes to watch movies in 30-minute intervals? No, no, no. I, I you often actually... You TV out of it that way. <laughs> I know I will often watch like an hour and then come back and finish the next 30 minutes the next yeah. day. Yeah. Sorry to all the city. I mean, because movies also there. have like, right. They have like three acts. Like there's certain like, you know, there, there are peaks and valleys in the drama. I mean, they're, 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 they're made for this. Yeah. That was the only way I watched tar. Oh God. Movies are too long. <laughs> or, or you can just not watch tar. <laughs> just what tar I did. was excellent. No, for kill- killers of the flower moon is what it's like. 10 hours or something now ridiculous like that you just gotta chop it up that's fair that's a fair that that is one i may watch in intervals at this point quinto what do you have for us this week i would like to recommend a book it is a book by Kashmir hill who reports on privacy for the new york times uh called your face belongs to us um and this is kind of the culmination of some reporting that listeners may be familiar with that Hill began a, a few years ago about a company named Clearview AI which essentially blasted through the self-imposed sort of ethical barriers that tech companies had set up to prevent themselves from putting out a you know widely accessible facial recognition system that could identify anyone anywhere collected a huge amount of information by scraping publicly available photos from the web and from social media sites, and then just kind of put it out there in some pretty appalling ways. Uh, So Hill's reporting on this has been available in the New York Times kind of in installments as the story developed. And her her book is now out. Um, I've been enjoying it a great deal. It's really a pleasure to kind of watch how the story develops in her in her telling since she's also a character in the the sort of the rise of this company and i think she does a really nice job in exploring the technology um and the legal and ethical complexities of facial recognition and of painting clearview as this kind of I don't even know how to describe it. They're sort of like bumbling villains. Um, They can't quite understand why anyone thinks that what they're doing is wrong. Um, And there are some interesting connections also between Clearview and sort of the 
emergent far right in 2016 and the Trump administration that are also interesting. So I, I have not yet finished. I'm close to the end, um, but I would highly recommend. Well, for my object lesson, uh, I'm leaning into the season because we are, of course, entering into the fall. The weather is cooling. Uh, I am in deep soup mode at this point, which I'm oh, very I was, excited I about. I thought I was going to get a cocktail, but I'll take a soup. I almost did a cocktail, but I'm going to do a soup on this one. Actually, I'm going to do 160 soups specifically because this <laughs> is the time of year where I break out one of my all-time favorite cookbooks, uh, which at this point I think is like 10 or 15 years old at this point. I've had it for a really long time, but it is still in print. I looked up. I actually won a James Beard Award at some point, which I had no idea because uh, the version I have is, I think, predates that being stamped on the front. But it's a book ridiculously named Love Soup by Anna Thomas. Uh, this is the same Anna Thomas who authored Vegetarian Epicure, like classic cookbook, does great vegetarian cookbook recipes, uh, cook recipes uh, in other cookbooks. This one, I feel like doesn't get a lot of attention or love somewhat ironically, but it is a phenomenal collection of 160 vegetarian soups, all of which are excellent. I've made a good number of them at this point. They have particularly a cauliflower bisque I make multiple times. Mm-hmm every winter that's phenomenal and super easy and it's just a great cookbook one of my all-time favorites it's a little weird to have on your bookshelf when you're like a single 27 year old male i will say uh i, I definitely my wife when she first came to my friends like what the hell is this what are what what is this on your bookshelf what a weird choice but you know Wait, it, was I it like not soup. a was it not a draw i i i feel like there's a certain kind of person I mean, who would be very attracted <laughs> to a man in his late 20s who has soup books on it's like that that man knows where he's going he has got it together he makes dozens of soups that I definitely do. If you've ever looked at my freezer, you're no doubt about my soup, my soup, uh, you know, fetishism. Um, but uh, regardless, uh, it's a unique book. It's great. It's one of my all time favorites. I highly recommend folks check it out if you are getting ready for cold season and looking to expand your culinary horizons in a soupy direction. And with that, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. So be sure to visit lawfaremedia.org for our show page with links to past episodes for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series. Uh, and be sure to follow us on Twitter or X at RATL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. I don't like how you say that, Scott. X. <laughs> God. X. That is, for the record, Again. I think that's how Elon Musk intends it to be pronounced. It is 100%. That's why I'm doing it. It is a lyric from a system of a down song, and that is all we're going to ever look, treat look, it as. Look, if we're going to call Turkey Turkia because that's what they want, we should call exactly. X because that's exactly. what Elon Musk wants. He paid billions of dollars, and this is maybe the only thing he gets out of it in the end. So let's just let the man have the W. Also, or the X, if you prefer. Also, be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Visit lawfaremedia.org support for information on how to do that. And our audio engineer and producer this week was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan, and we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell, on behalf of my co-host Alan Quinta, and our special guest Molly Reynolds, who was not able to stick with us at the last end of the segment. Apologies, folks. I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.